All right. Well, good evening. All right, is that a little better? There we go. It looks like we are just family. How are we doing, Tyler? Better? There we go. All right. I need to move this a little further. All right. Looking around, it looks like we are just family this evening. Um, but I'm excited to be here for week two of our Ephesians study. For those that made it last week, Matt opened us up with an awesome overview of the book of Ephesians. Uh, managed to preach for 30 minutes off of just verses one and two, which makes me feel pretty good because this week all I've got is verses three through 14. So we're not using a lot of material here. We are going slow and meticulously, and that is intentional. We are spending the next 16 or so weeks in the book of Ephesians. And the vision for this time is that we as a congregation, especially those who really weren't here for the beginning when the church was really laying the foundation of who it was, uh, we are taking this time to relay those foundations. Um, as six of us are getting together to study the word together and write these teachings, um, I was really encouraged the first week we did it. We're together, we're, we're talking about these things. Um, all of us guys that are, are new to this are a little bit nervous, like, oh my goodness, we got to put together teachings that are going to go before these guys who have been walking with the Lord for 40 years longer than us. And in the middle of that, Bill had this awesome word that's just been uh, comforting and strengthening uh, to me since then, which is nothing new. You don't have to figure out anything new. We are just going back to the truths that have been there for 2,000 years before now. You just need to bring the word of truth, nothing new. So I'm excited to tonight bring you absolutely nothing new, but hopefully to relay some absolutely foundational truths of what we are as a church and what it means to be a church and to walk with God. So tonight we're going to just be going over Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 to briefly cover the context that Matt went into great length in last week. This is a section, or this is a book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is a church that he founded. He spent two or three years there uh, teaching, both in the synagogue and in public preaching. And it said the word of the God was spread to all of Asia, or that geographic area. Uh, this letter is being written by Paul while he's in captivity. So he is in Rome, in jail, in, well, in a home jail for his faith, awaiting trial before Caesar. And we know that eventually that captivity will be his final time before his life is taken. And that this was an epistle not so much written to the church of Ephesus specifically, but as a circulating letter. This is Paul's letter to the church broadly, and a church letter that was meant to be spread to all of the small churches throughout that area. All right. And whenever I can get slides up there... All right. Thank you, Nick. Okay. So I have a picture behind me of an iceberg, which is my analogy for the evening. When they gave me this section of scripture and said, Matt, please write a 30-minute sermon on the following one sentence in the book of Ephesians, my first thought was, this is not a lot of material. How on earth am I going to go and talk to people for 30 minutes and have a teaching on 11 verses, one sentence in the Bible? And then as I dug into it, 
I discovered that it was very much like an iceberg, and before I knew it, I was just doing my best to not get dragged down in all the rabbit holes of depth that are in this tiny little section of scripture, and how can I bring this concisely and not talk for two hours tonight and just speak to you for 30 minutes? Um, and so before I knew it, if I can figure out how to use this clicker, you know, Nick, that would be a good idea. Oh my. Hey, look at that. So before I knew it, my best intentions were going down. I felt like I had ran into something insurmountable and I did not know how to wrap all this up and bring you guys just something that was that was meaningful and concise and that I could share and would help lay those foundations but not get lost down a million little rabbit holes like I was talking about. And so this evening, let's see if I can figure out how to change the slides again. There we go. So this evening, what we need is a life preserver. I needed a life preserver, something that I can grab onto that's going to keep me above water and keep us focused in so that we don't head on down too many things and we can leave this evening with something in common. And so that theme is going to be relationship. So what I want us to focus on tonight is relationship. Let's see if I can get this change again. I think Nick is actually the one changing the slides. I don't think I'm doing anything. That is you, isn't it? All right, thank you, Nick. All right, so as Dan Hamill shared a few weeks ago, if you were here uh, when you got to hear Dan come and preach, one of the things he talked about from the letter of Ephesians and what Paul is talking about is that this letter, which was predominantly to, or most of Paul's letters, predominantly to Jew and Gentile churches, the Jews had the idea, as all people did at that time for the most part uh, in the Jewish culture, that there was, there was one God, that God was a single individual who was relating to it was a single individual. And so Paul in this section suddenly blows that idea up that God is just one person talking to us. Can we go to the next slide, Nick? Awesome. So Paul expands that idea. And here we get to see that God is not one person, but he's three people living in perfect relationship with one another for all of eternity. The first person of that relationship is the Father. The Father is a king, the benevolent king of all existence. And his heart is to raise up an heir to pass on the throne of his kingdom in due season. The heir is his son and the second person of God. And when you think about the heart of the son, I was thinking about my own heart uh, when I was a little kid. So I remember when I was young wishing that my dad owned a business. My dad had a great job. He worked for Ford. He reminds me a lot of Ron and Eric and a lot of the other guys in here. He was a tool and, or is a tool and die maker. Um, but I remember wishing that my dad owned a business, not because I wanted to grow up wealthy or anything. I had no concept of wealth, but what I knew about people that owned businesses was their dads got to work with them. So I couldn't go into my dad's work, right? Heavy machinery, tool and die, you're in and out of stuff. You, I couldn't even visit dad. One day a year, they would have open house to the families at Ford, and you got to go in with dad, and you got to see these giant machines that he worked with and get a little taste of what he did. But that was it. Everything else was closed off to me. For people who their dad owns their own business, they get to go in with them every day. And so I had this kind of romantic idea, and I don't think it was unique to me. I think there's something in the heart's of most young men 
where they want to go and be where their dad is and be doing the work that their dad is doing and to grow with them in that relationship and that common vision. And so that's who the son is. So you have a father who's a king, the benevolent king. He has a son. It's his joy to raise that son up as his future heir. And you have this son whose heart is to be with the father, doing what he's doing, walking with him in shared vision. And the third person is the Holy Spirit. Um, I spent quite a while trying to figure out what to write to describe who the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm not unique in this, but I feel like the Holy Spirit is the hardest person to capture who he is. Um, And so as I was writing this, I I couldn't really come to one thing. I finally got something written, and I sent all this off to Arthur Martin, and I'm glad I did. Arthur's not here tonight, is he? Oh, he's hiding in the back. Good. I get to give Arthur credit. So Arthur sends back, and he points out at least three ways in which I was basically being heretical about who the Holy Spirit was. It's really hard to talk about the Holy Spirit without tripping yourself up and saying something that makes him seem like a, uh, he is a byproduct of the Father and the Son, or some other way in which he isn't co-equal and co-eternal. But Arthur, who unsurprisingly is excellent with words, sent me this back. And so I just put it in there exactly as he wrote it, and I think it's beautiful. So this is what Arthur wrote to me about the Holy Spirit. He is the living love life between the Father and the Son, a love so vibrant and deep that he is a person of equal nature to the Father and Son. He delights in glorifying the persons from whom he proceeds. Thank you, Arthur. That was awesome. So out of this eternal three-person relationship, God established a new relationship when he created a new creature, man, in his own image. Unfortunately, we know the story. Man violates that relationship, choosing self-dependence instead of dependence on God when he ate the forbidden fruit and was removed from the presence of God and participating in the eternal family. Thankfully, in the proper moment in history, God sent his son as a man to fulfill in the flesh the perfect life that we failed to attain And then by laying that life down on the cross, was able to take unto himself the curse of our sins and tear down that dividing wall of hostilities between us and God. He made peace between the creation and the creator possible again in himself. And so here we are, Ephesians, back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul is writing this section out of that revelation of the restored relationship between the created man and his eternal creator, whose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This restoration occurs when man repents from independence from God and returns to complete dependence on God through Christ. And during our study of this section, Bill pointed out to our group that this section reads, this section reads like a declaration. Only unlike in our country where you have a declaration of independence, this is a declaration of renewed dependence on God. And so I'd like us as a congregation to take a minute here and read this section. Bill's volunteered to lead us in it. I think Nick is going to put it up on the screen if you don't have it, and Bill will be reading out of the NIV.
If you could find a, a Bible or maybe you have it on your phone, go ahead. Let's all stand as we read. I'll be reading from the New International Version. This is the word of God through Paul to the Ephesians to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed the truth, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession in the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Bill. All right. So relationship, that is our focus tonight. That is going to be our life preserver. Relationship. And so in 3 through 14, what we're going to be pulling out is everything unique about the role and function of each member of that heavenly family within that relationship. So we're going to start off with what Paul has to say about the Father in this section. And Paul begins the sentence, which this is one sentence in the Greek. Paul begins it in verse 3 with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And making the Father the primary subject of the rest of this. So when you read this section, you need to realize that Paul is primarily focusing on who the Father is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So... Point one about the father that he makes is that he is the leader. This is really clear throughout this section. Five times he's going to make statements about the father leading the, pers- or the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their, in their internal life together. Verse five, he says, according to the purpose of his will. Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will and according to his purpose. In verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time. And in 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the leader. He's setting the direction, the purpose. He is the one who is directing the actions. Which, too, he is also the main actor. 
So when you read through here, you will notice in 3 through 14, there are no action statements by the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Father is the only person that is acting. In verse 3, he blesses. Verse 4, he chooses. Verse 5, he predestines. 9, he purposes and wills. 10, he plans. 11, he works all things. All right. Point three, he loves. So in five, it says that his motivating factor is love. It's not some mechanical function. The father is love. And later on in this book, in chapter two, four, and five, Paul tells us that God loved us not just after we had come to the son, not after we had been covered in his blood, but when we were dead in our trespasses. He was already loving us. Point four is that he has grace. So all of what is said in this section, Paul says, is according to the riches of the Father's grace. It's an unmerited condescension of God toward others. Point five, the Father is lavish, it says. Lavish in his wisdom and insight. He is not stingy. All the things that Paul is telling the Ephesians they have in God in this section, God has lavished them. And he has done them in wisdom and insight. Despite how ugly we were when he brought us to us, God had not made a miscalculation or a mistake. He wasn't acting hastily or emotionally. He had done all things with the wisdom of the eternal mind. And point six, the end of all these things is the glory of the Father. Verse 12 and 14 show that God's actions are going to result in an extension of his image and praise in the earth. All right. Now the second person, the Son. So starting in chapter 1, verse 6, we get the first characteristic of who the Son is in relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that is that he is the beloved. So that word there for beloved, the Gospel of Matthew uses it three times in relation to Jesus. So first in Matthew chapter 3, after his baptism, we know that Jesus comes down to John the Baptist at the water. There John tries to reject him telling him, no, I, I need you to cover me. I need you to wash my sins. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. But Jesus says, no, that all things might be done right, that all righteousness might occur. And so John ascents. He puts Jesus under. Jesus comes up. It says the heavens are open. The Spirit came down in the form of a dove and alighted on the Son. And this voice came from heaven, the declaration of the Father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Again, in Matthew 12, Matthew shows us how Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah that the Messiah would be my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And in chapter 17, the transfiguration, Peter, he's still speaking. He has seen Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and he looks around and says, this is a great situation. We should go ahead and build some houses here and hang out for a while. So Peter's in the middle of saying that when, behold, it says a bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The second characteristic of the father or the son, and I think his primary characteristic is that of obedience. If the Father is primarily the one leading, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father's one setting the direction. He's the vision and the plan. It's the Son's delight to come alongside him, be part of the Father's business. And so the Son in that is completely obedient. Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Gospel of John in particular wants us to see this aspect of relationship of obedience with the Father. So John does this by recording the response of Jesus in various challenging situations. And I want to just go through a few of those from the Gospel of John. He shows us Jesus exhausted and hungry, having walked all day, coming to a well. He's confronted by a selfish, sinful woman. His disciples are telling him to leave that sister. We're not even sure why he's talking to this person. Jesus, you shouldn't be talking to a woman at all. You definitely shouldn't be talking to this woman. That's a Samaritan. Do you know anything about Samaritans? Those are the people we don't talk to. Well, in response to that, Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And he shares the good news of his father's kingdom. And that day, Samaria, a city famous for its idolatry and sin, responded and repented. This is the new Jonah that did not get on the ship and ran away. He went to the city and preached repentance, and that city turned. Jesus, confronted by the religious and political leaders for breaking their man-made rules around the Sabbath, responds, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my will, but him who sent me. When his own disciple, Philip, struggling to have faith, asked the son to just show me the father and it will be enough. And Jesus, I can finally get on board with what you're doing if you'll just show me the father. Jesus responds, whoever has seen the father has seen me. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but as the father who dwells in me works. And finally, on his knees in the garden, awaiting the arrival of his betrayer, an illegal and unjust trial and execution for crimes he did not commit, the son's words were, Father, if possible, let this, pass, uh, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. The third point about the son. He is the object of the father's purposes. So the father setting direction, that direction is eternally set on the son, making the son the center of everything that he's doing. In 9 through 10 in this section, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And later in this chapter, verses 20 through 23, Paul expands on that idea further. He says that the Father has seated Jesus at his right hand. He has put him above all rule and authority and dominion in every name that is named, and he's put everything under his feet. And he's given him over head, or head over all things to the church, which is his body. And it is going to be Jesus who fills all in all. And the fourth point, and the last point about the Son, is that he is the place of God's blessings. So, all through 3 through 14, every blessing that is named, it says that it is in Christ. In verse 3, it begins with, blessed or blessed be, or he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so this is an idea that we are going to get expanded greatly through Dan and Victor. Their whole teaching will focus in on Jesus, and they will help us unpack that idea of the blessing being in him. All right, the third person of this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to spend more time here because I feel like Paul spends less time here in this section. 
And sometimes it's harder for me, and maybe you're the same as me, to connect the Holy Spirit into what God's doing here. And so Paul closes the section in 13 and 14. That's finally we see the Holy Spirit come in. And the first characteristic we notice about him there is that the Holy Spirit is promised. It says promised. And this promise is not a New Testament promise. It's fulfillment of God's prophetic promises to people Israel that he would one day give them his own spirit. Isaiah 44 For I will pour out my spirit on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Jesus himself prophesied this before the cross and reaffirmed his promise after the resurrection. In John 16 it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And after the cross, it says that while he stayed with them for a while, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. That promise being the Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, we get the second characteristic of the Holy Spirit in this area, and that is that he is a seal or a guarantee, a guarantee, it says, of their inheritance. I think for myself and maybe many others here, you're more familiar with other functions of the Holy Spirit. Someone, uh, the person of God who comes and convicts the world of sin, of truth, that leads us into revelation of who the Father is, but I've never really connected with the idea of the Holy Spirit being a seal or guarantee. Well, in order to understand this idea, I found it was very important to understand the Holy Spirit as fire. We know a little bit about that imagery, and I want to walk us through a little more of that. So, in the New Testament, Matthew 3, we know that John the Baptist prophesied that he would baptize, he says that he, he, who is Jesus, coming after me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the disciples are together They're scared. They're hiding in the upper room. They're not sure what's going to happen. Jesus is gone. They're praying, and suddenly divided tongues as a fire appear to them and rest on each one of them, and they are filled with the Holy Ghost. And we know from there they go out, Peter preaches, and there are 3,000 souls that are added to the church that day. Well, this is not a New Testament idea. In order to really understand this imagery, we need to back up and see the promises of God through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So fire, as a seal of God's purposes, spans all the way from Genesis through Revelations. Genesis 15, 1 through 18, is a beautiful story of the Lord coming to Abraham after he's won the battle to save Lot and his family. So we'll remember that Lot, which is his cousin or his nephew, gets kidnapped. He's taken off by a number of kings. Abraham goes, chases after those kings along with his 300 warriors, and they win the battle, they conquer the day, they bring back Lot and his family. And afterwards, God has a conversation with Abraham. So God makes seven promises to Abraham during that conversation. He says that he's going to give Abraham an heir, his own son. He's going to make his offspring like the stars of the heavens. He's going to give him a literal land, the land of Canaan, for his possession and for his offspring. It says that his offspring, however, would be in bondage and sojourners for 400 years, but that he would bring judgment on that nation of the, that brought them into bondage, and he would bring them out and give them great possession. 
He says that Abraham would die in peace at a great old age and that in the fourth generation specifically, Abraham's children would come back to this land. All right, so that's a lot of promises. And unsurprisingly, Abraham hears all this and he has an immediate question, which is in verse 8, it says that Abraham says, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I going to know that I shall possess it? How am I going to know I'm going to need all these things? And we get a very interesting story that God tells Abraham to go and take a few different animals and to divide them, to cut them all in half and to lay them out. And all day long they lay out it says that Abraham has to chase the birds away. Birds are the, you know, presumably vultures or ravens are coming down. They're trying to get at the carcasses. Abraham's with those carcasses all day long. So there he is with divided bodies and blood all on the ground, keeping these things safe. And then the evening comes. It becomes to be dark. And this is what it says. The sun goes down and it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire and a flaming torch passed through their pieces. Maybe you can think of another instance in which a body was being broken and divided, that blood was being spilled, and that darkness came and fire came in the midst of it, and God's promises were affirmed. Other instances of the Holy Spirit as fire authenticating the purposes of God. God seals the garden and the tree of life against Adam and his descendants with a flaming sword. Flame out of, or flame of fire out of the midst of a bush authenticates the voice of Yahweh speaking to Moses in the desert. A pillar of cloud during the day and fire by night authenticated God as the one leading the people Israel out of the land of Egypt. On Mount Sinai, the Lord descends on it in fire, saying, this is the Lord who's come down. The, uh, the cloud during the day and the fire by night was over the tabernacle leading them in the wilderness. And Solomon, dedicating the temple, finishes his prayer and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. Elijah tells the people, as they've wandered away from God, they're worshiping other idols. He says, it'll be the God who answers by fire, who is Yahweh. And we know that after pouring water over the sacrifice and praying to God, fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, the stones, the water, and everything there. And finally, coming back to the New Testament, the last prophet in the Bible, John the Baptist, is given a sign from the Father how to verify who the Christ was. He is preparing the way for the anointed one, the Messiah, who's to come. And the Father says, I'm going to tell you how you'll know who my anointed one is. John chapter 1, John said to me, that he who sent me, that is God, to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the Son of God. So again, the Spirit of God sealing the purposes of God. So how does it connect to Paul's audience of new believers, many of whom are Gentiles? They are not part of the promises of God from Abraham until now. Well, like Abraham, the Ephesians have just received a new promise of adoption into a family, the heavenly family, and the blessings that come with it. And like Abraham, I feel like they should have the natural question, how do I know these things shall come to pass? Well, Paul tells them that God's promise bears the same seal now that it did in Abraham's day. And so the Holy Spirit is going to come on them, and they are going to be sealed and know beyond a doubt that they are part of the heavenly family and they have an inheritance in God's people. 
And we know that this was big on Paul's heart. I believe Matt mentioned this in his teaching, but when Paul goes back to Ephesus, he goes there, he's there for just a couple weeks, he leaves, he comes back, and there are people there saying that they're Christians. Paul says, well, have you, heard, have you received the Holy Spirit? That's his first question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, well, into what were you baptized? And I say, well, we're, we're baptized into John's baptism, the baptism of repentance from sins. And Jesus, or and Paul, unpackages them who the Holy Spirit is, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues. And so it was Paul's expectation. The sign that he looked for that someone was in Christ was that they had received, had a personal experience with the Holy Spirit. All right, so what do we see coming out of this life between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Together in relationship for all eternity, the Father leading, the Son in perfect obedience, and out of their love preceding the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, what we see out of them is blessing. What comes out of that life is blessing. Ephesians 1, 3 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see who that blessing is extended to, the saints. So those who are faithful, it says, in Christ. That's who Paul is writing this to. Those are who possess these promises of blessing. The Father is the actor of the blessing. The Son is the place of the blessing. And it's in Christ that we will find every one of these. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of those blessings. Paul communicates at least eight specific blessings in this section to us. Verse 4, we're made holy and blameless. 5, we have redemption of sons or adoption of sons. 7, we have redemption and forgiveness. 9, the revelation of God's mysterious will. 10, unity with God. 11, we have an inheritance. And 14, a guarantee of these, the Holy Spirit. I just want to pull out one of those because we do not have time tonight to go through all eight. And we'll see those uh, through some of the other people teaching. But I want to talk about adoption as sons. So what this means is that we now get to take on the character of the son. We are now sons and daughters of the Most High through our adoption in Christ. Thank you, brother. Galatians 4, these are verses that most of you are familiar with. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And in two, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so if we are in Christ, if we are now sons and daughters, then we have the same characteristics as the Son. We are beloved we get to hear from our Father, you are beloved. You are my beloved. Victor, you are my beloved. We are meant to walk in perfect obedience. Every day we should be waking up and we should be wanting the will of the Father to proceed from our hearts and lead and guide us in all things. When we come to women by the well, when we are confronted by the political, religious, or otherwise leaders of our day, when we have friends who are challenging us, who are perhaps even getting ready to betray us. In all of these things, what comes out of us? Is it us or is it Christ? Is it the will of the Father? Is it perfect obedience in those situations? And finally, we are now the place of God's blessing. 
God's blessing is in Christ. Christ is in you. You are now an extension of the place where God blesses in the earth. And that is amazing. We're vessels of Christ in the earth. We're the place of God's blessing. And we get to extend that offer throughout the world to all those who are separated from God. And this is a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. We know that Abraham said that in, or God told Abraham that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's happening in you every day when you step out in Christ, when you put on Christ and go out and walk in the truth that God wants to manifest himself through you. You are becoming the fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham that we would bless the nations. All right. So how can we walk in this in a deeper way? We need to hear and receive the Great Commission. Christ spelled it out in no uncertain words. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ states three specific ways that we get to participate in extending the heavenly family's blessing. We get to go out and we get to make disciples. We get to go to people in our work, along the way at the grocery store, in our families, in all places and times. We have the opportunity to share with other people the life and hope that's inside of us and to be a part of them becoming disciples of our Lord and Savior. We get to baptize. We've had two baptisms this year already. If anybody knows, Ray or has had the joy of meeting Ray earlier this year, just after the new year, Ray committed his life to Christ, and in a very small bathtub in the upstairs of Billy's house, that man got to go under the water and come back, and I was there, and I'll tell you, that man came out of the water a changed person. His face was full of the joy of Christ, and that was a new man that came up out of the water. We get the joy of being part of baptism. Woody, I don't know if he's here tonight. I see his sister. Is Woody here tonight? All right. Woody, when we were down in Florida declared that he wanted to renew his walk with Christ, and he went into a very cold pool and came back out, not just shivering, but filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to go out and to share the word. And the excitement in him was infectious. And finally, we get to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We get to walk with people continually, and through our relationship with him and knowledge, we get to extend our hand down and pull them up to where we are and let them know what we know about the Father. And so just as Christ's obedience to his mission resulted in the extension of all blessing in heavenly places to our lives, our obedience to that mission will help bring that onto the nations and extend that heavenly family. All right, so who, what is, who is this for tonight? Who, who would need to hear this? If you have, maybe this is for you tonight, if you have walked away from or no longer living in that place of continual obedience or dependence on God. As we said at the beginning, man fell when he stopped being completely dependent on God and chose self-dependence. Maybe you have gotten really comfortable at work. Uh, maybe you have found a ladder to climb. Uh, maybe you've gotten some really comfortable social circles. Um, you've gotten really good at networking. Maybe you've gotten really good at building a comfortable friend group. Uh, and you've, you've gotten to a place where you feel like you're in control, things are going well, and you don't need to be walking daily in dependence on God. This would be for you. You need to remember what it is that we're called to do. We can't make the kingdom come by our own will and effort. We need to be walking in dependence 
on God continually in order to be pleasing before him. Maybe you need to hear that you have the adoption as a son or a daughter. Um, maybe you have a challenging family life. Uh, maybe things haven't been going very easy at home. Uh, or maybe you didn't have a good home growing up. Uh, maybe things are not going well between you and your kids right now. You have adoption as a perfect son, and God wants to manifest his life in you. You have a perfect father that wants to bring you alongside him, and he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. That little thing in you as a kid that wanted to walk with him and be a part of what he was doing with your earthly father or mother, he wants to bring that thing back to life and for you to live that way with him. And maybe you need to remember that you need the Holy Spirit for these things. Maybe you're like me and you have trouble sometimes connecting with what the Holy Spirit does uh, in the walk as Christians. And so if you're like me, maybe you need to stop sometimes and take time to contemplate the guarantee of our faith, uh, the one who has made all these promises assured and who wants to lead us into null knowledge and truth. Whatever it is, um, I hope that something this evening will help connect you back into that perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.